0: Welcome to the Sports Marketing Huddle, a podcast that looks at all things marketing in the world of sports. I'm your host, Rob Cressy, founder of Bacon Sports, and joining me, my man, Scott Dunn. Scott, super excited to have you on the show. Can you give a quick overview
1: on who you are and what you've done? Absolutely, Rob. Thanks for having me, my fellow Yinzer. Yes. Proud to say that. Uh, I have been in the sports media and tech space my entire career. That's eight years. My first four years were spent in sales and marketing roles at NBC Sports and Turner Sports doing big sponsorship sales. And then I left that industry completely to launch a couple products of my own uh, until most recently spearheading partnerships at a social audio app called Bumpers. Uh, if you listen to sports content, there's a chance, probably a very high chance that you've consumed content from Bumpers or used it for yourself over the last two years. And we basically democratized everything there is about creating, sharing, and consuming micro podcast content. Um, and allowed me to meet a ton of talented people, just like yourself, Rob. You were one of our early adopters. You know what we're all about, or were. You knew what we used to be all about.
0: (laughs) Uh, Of course. So what I wanted to do was have a conversation to talk about the sports media landscape, what we like and don't like, but more specifically drilling down, I think there's some touch points that I want to get to, the content landscape, revenue generation, and community building, because – as we've seen in the sports media landscape, uh, there's been a lot of layoffs, and part of that is how our brands generating revenue. And with that, it's very much content has been commoditized. So where does community building fit on all of this? So let's start with the content landscape as a whole right now. Who has your eye as like the number one, like
1: somebody who's doing it great? Yeah, I mean... I'll say this, right? I, we'll start off with Barstool. And, and I say that as someone who doesn't actually actively engage with their content. I'm just an outsider looking in. And what I see is a passionate group of fans who are very all in on the commentary, right? So it's beyond just reporting hard news. Um, I feel like that day has kind of come and gone. People want layers to it. People want personalities who can provide you know, very thoughtful analysis and um, you know some fun social humor as well. And that's that parlayed with just a general layer of authenticity that I think barstool sports thrives on, has created a really interesting environment that is challenging all their competitors, right? So, as an example, ESPN Sports Center—they used to be that. They used to embody these like unbelievable personalities who all individually offered something new, and that collectively built up the brand of ESPN. And what they decided to do, unfortunately, was purge that group, and you know what their philosophy was nobody's bigger than the brand but honestly the people make the brand and as they lost um god i can go down the whole laundry list you know Dan Patrick and and Rich Eisen and so forth uh there was just a depleted group of of quote unquote talent and people left they wanted to go where the talent existed and now i think a lot of that talent exists um you know at a barstool sports and um you know obviously numbers don't lie they continue to show growth in their podcast network um, you know, a lot of cool sponsorships that they're rolling out, uh, obviously there's the whole merchandise element. Um, so I think when you have a level of loyalty that, uh, you know, they have, um, you kind of, you know, can create the market and they've been able to do that. So they've always been impressing me from an early, you know, from the early days, but you know, as we talk here today, um, they, they continue to find new ways to evolve. So you got to give them credit.
0: Okay. So knowing how important community building is, and I think one of the reasons why Barstool has such a loyal community is because it was built over a 10 year span from Portnoy. So it wasn't something where all of a sudden in year one, they got an insane amount of funding and they become the new buzzfeed of the internet. And you're like, Oh man, we've been ride or die for the last three months together. It's, it's something that's grown over the years. So if we look at the landscape, Barstool really seems to be to be the only one who actually embraces community, and that doesn't necessarily mean that these other brands. So I'm always looking at the ringers of the world because Bill Simmons is someone that I've, I've very closely followed what he's done, and why do these larger brands not embrace community more? So Barstool, from a size standpoint, they're not bigger than. ESPN, they're not bigger than Bleacher. Yet, when you look at the engagement metrics on a per fan basis from an an average, they're absolutely crushing it. So, why don't we see these other brands starting to embrace community building more? Is it the model was built on, let's call it page views and impressions? And because of that, They're not going to all of a sudden say, well, now we're going to start caring about building a community. It's, I mean, it's almost like, can you say right now we're going to change and because of that, lose half of your audience, but know that there's an opportunity for a deeper connection? Because it always blew my mind that ESPN wasn't more community focused because get this – I almost bought the ESPN phone. It would have been one of the worst decisions <laughs> of my entire life because of how quickly it went away. But here's the thing I felt such a brand affinity for SportsCenter Center and ESPN for my entire life. So the built in community of it of Stuart Scott and Linda Cohn and Keith and Dan, like it had everything that I wanted, but then they never loved me back. And <laughs> because that's really what that's what a community is. And Barstool is given that opportunity. So, why aren't we seeing a shift to more community focused, whereas Barstool seems to be the only one who is?
1: ESPN and like the NFL, they've always had this like pretentious nature to them, right? And like as a fan, all you want is a connection to that brand. You don't want to have to like feel that you're underappreciated. So, like, I don't think it was as recognized maybe in the 90s and 2000s as it might be today, but. In terms of like your question, the most difficult thing to do is disrupt your own business. ESPN has been the market leaders for three decades, up until, what, four? I mean, look, they still are. But four years ago, only four years ago, Rob, did everything kind of start to take shape, right? Did like, uh, smartphone adoption become widespread and did mobile video begin to emerge? Like We're talking less than four years here uh, over you know, a span of you know, three and some decades. So ESPN is still, I feel, educating themselves on like what's exactly happening, who their consumer is, because they're getting older and this younger demographic isn't growing up with ESPN like me and you did. They're growing up with Bleacher Report. They're growing up with The Ringer. They're growing up with Barstool. They're growing up with the SB Nation um, fan rag. You can just go on and on. So I feel that's the biggest issue right now is they're just trying to understand like where they fit, but ultimately... To disrupt a business that generates billions of dollars is something that's very, very difficult to do. And I think only somebody like a barstool that can start at the earliest of stages with like a blank canvas and experiment and do things without really much risk. You know, I think that 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 puts you in a a supreme advantage. And, uh, you know, I, I love using this example. Right. You follow House of Highlights on Instagram. Of course. I mean, you know, how much does that cost to operate, right? Like hardly anything, you you know, I know they acquired uh, the rights to it and they hired that kid and he probably has like an an intern, but you got like two kids with no studio curating all the content that people really care about uh, and and actually in a faster pace and they're generating higher levels of engagement um, than like, you know, sports centers handles are. So like compare those two and all that money that ESPN's burning where, you know, whereas you have this, you know, 20 something year old kid doing it on his own and having more success. Like. I think that's just the state of the market right now, and and suddenly ESPN's resources aren't necessarily a huge advantage as they might have been, you know, four or five, six years ago. So uh, in terms of like why they're not generating a, a deeper, uh, you know, community, uh, I just don't think they understand who cares about them right now. I don't think they understand their consumer, and you can't build a community. If you don't understand the people who make the community.
0: So let's drill down on the community aspect. One more layer. Something that I'm a broken record on is a lack of brands. And it's not even just sports media brands, but we'll say specifically sports media brands who don't respond back to the consumers who engage with them. So part of it, why do they not build a community because they don't try and build a community. So they think of it very much as content aggregation and news we're going to push it out to you. We've got these platforms where we're getting a certain amount of distribution, and they care about the dollars that they can make from that. But where they're missing is what about the 100 comments that are on a post about uh, can LeBron, what would, what would happen if LeBron beats the Warriors this year? Would he be the greatest ever? And at no point does anybody engage back with the audience like they make this a one-sided conversation where it's like boom we're going to set the stage for this thing we want you to click on the article to go to our website but they're missing the whole social engagement part of this where it's a two it should be a two-way conversation and as somebody who only consumes sports content I don't read or watch anything else other than sports none of the major brands have ever responded back to me and it's like well rob how in the world can they because they've got millions of fans and and the resources that it would take well guess what how about an effort bigger than zero so the next layer would be like all right well if the major brands or the publishers aren't responding back well what about the personalities within them so let's take the, the largest, most popular personalities for each of them. I think this is actually the area where Barstool has become very successful is the big cats and the PFTs of the world. And even Eric Nardini, their CEO, they respond back to people on Twitter. Whereas I feel like with a lot of these other brands, it's very much a uh, everybody's in one silo and then the engagement is so, so little that you can just tell from the amount of quote retweets and the number of people who respond back to you. So is it a lack of, um, is the culture incorrect? Like, I don't understand how they don't, under, don't see the community building opportunities there. And it's, all it is is effort, but it's like, well, you know what, we're not going to make tons of dollars off of me responding back to you, so why should we do it?
1: No, it's completely well said, Rob. And like, I think a fan or just, you know, any average person wants to be a part of something bigger than themselves, right? Like they want that deep connection. Um, and so this, this might be like a weird uh, analysis, but like, hear me out. Uh, I graduated with Wiz Khalifa. I'm from Pittsburgh and he doesn't make necessarily good music. I, I mean, look, I, I'm trying I to love be... <laughs>
0: me. So some... Wiz's last album was good, but proceed. Look,
1: I, we could talk about it all day. He makes <laughs> pretty good music. I don't think he makes as good of music as his loyal Uh, widespread fan base would suggest but why does he have this incredibly loyal following perhaps more loyal than dare I say any hip-hop artist in the space even a Drake because people like his music for you know the club or for you know the one-liners but for Wiz it's something a lot deeper because he was actually at the forefront in like 2008 2009 where he was riding the coattail of YouTube He was opening up his life to his fans. He was the first on Twitter. So he was really embracing and engaging with all his fans from a very early stage who were growing alongside with him. And they felt like they were on board for the ride. And he treated them as such. He respected them. And he still does. So even though you can go through the ebbs and flows of your career and make good music and make poor music, those people are there because they care, right? So I feel like that foundation can be recycled into – any sector, any other example, it's making your followers feel appreciated and feel that they're valued and opening up access to them. So they feel that deeper level of connection and being as authentic as possible. And again, Barstool kind of crosses off every one of those boxes and ESPN almost doesn't ESPN, for my opinion, um, has just had, you know, the supercilious view on we're the best, you know, you know, we provide what we think is best for you you know, forget the fact that, you know, you have an opinion on this, that, the other, we're not going to change our ways because, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is the Kool-Aid that we're serving. And I think after a certain period of time, people just don't care about that anymore. You can't ride the coattail of your brand for, you know, ever. I think you have to shape things up. You have to evolve. And they have been uh, a little hesitant in doing so And quickly. The competitors catch up and now uh, they're in a very tough place. So, uh, you know, again, man, it's just, being willing to stay as authentic and open as possible. And, you know, for better or worse, you'll reap uh, benefits in the long term, in my opinion. So uh, I can't really speak for what ESPN's doing right now. Uh, I'm just am not a fan.
0: All right. So now let's get to revenue generation for the sports media landscape. And we're not going to talk about the the name the buying the rights to the leagues and all of that we're going to talk more from a sports publisher landscape because we're seeing the sports publishers hit the hardest with layoffs where all of a sudden they build up these huge content teams that let's call it five years ago the motto was ten five to 10 years ago was get as many page views as we can because we're going to make an arbitrage off of it we're going to get the organic reach from facebook take that now all of a sudden. You're just pumping Facebook dollars because it costs you a dollar, but you're making a dollar and ten cents, so boom, you turn that faucet on all the way. Then all of a sudden what happens is everything goes from desktop to mobile, which is significantly less monetizable. You've got um from a, a publisher selling standpoint, you used to have internal sales teams, but now you can just go to these uh Demand side platforms, and you can buy audience anywhere. So now the exclusivity or selling a demographic of a website is significantly harder. And at the same time, click through rates have gone down and CPMs have gone down. So now the desktop revenue that you make from banner ads is significantly less. And then the majority of traffic now is mobile. So I know on Bacon Sports right now, we're at at least 70% mobile to desktop. So then you look at the publishers and say, we built this bad boy on an ad advertising model. We're kind of screwed when the way that we built this thing has completely changed. And oh, by the way, Facebook organic reach has dried up from a posting links perspective. So getting the traffic that you once once had is no longer as easy. So then you look at the publishers and you're like, well, how in the world else are they going to sell? So what most of them have done is they just said, well, we're just going to put more Higher impact units on the page at once. So now you go to uh, one website. I don't know CBS I don't even think it's Sportsline anymore, but whatever. <laughs> I for remember an, those things. <laughs> right. For an example, and there's like there's a a giant Honda truck, and then there's like two banners on the rail, and then there's a giant pop-up, and, then, and there's literally like four inches of actual space on the site that's not being. Uh, monetized, so the user experience is absolute crap, so you 're like all right well we 're going to try and do maybe native or sponsored advertising within what we 're doing there, but that there 's a finite amount that you can do with that if you didn 't build on that model like BuzzFeed did, so then you say, "All right, well, what else can we do to try and generate revenue and you see Barstool is doing a lot with apparel uh they 're trying to find some other things doing events where they 've got their rough and rowdy. Uh, you've got podcast revenue obviously you see what the ringer is doing with that Um, and it just seems like a very imperfect thing where it is severely capped based on the way that the digital consumption habits are in the advertising opportunities inside of it so how are you seeing this sports publishing landscape because right now I don't believe that there is very many out there doing a good job of it that keep, can be sustained even when you're su- you're highly funded. Those funds are going to dry up eventually unless all of a sudden Turner gets you like Bleacher Report where you don't have to worry about it as much, but unless you're getting 10 20 million right out of the gate, you're kind of screwed.
1: Yeah, um, you know, every so often, whatever it, it could vary, maybe every two to three years, you see this new trend in tech where like everybody flocks to the new hot thing, and the new hot thing right now is the sub model, Right, you're putting all your content behind a paywall, and you're paying a nominal, you know, fee, eight, ten dollars a month, and you get you know the whole universe of content behind it, and it's the most purest form. Uh, so, with that in mind, I've always been bullish on the athletic uh, for two reasons. One. Um, they're scooping up all the top local talent. So that, car- that carries with them this you know, very passionate group of followers in these hyper-local regions who really need that content. And so they're willing to pay those five to $8 a month because the content is high and they're not inundated with advertisements. So with that in mind, it actually very much caters to the consumer. Very similar to the recipe found on Netflix, right? They're 110% dedicated to the consumer and because of that great consumer experience, they're more inclined to pay 5 to 8 to $10 a month to consume that content. So I really feel like right now that's a good place to be, although it scares me that as more and more publishers begin to flog towards that model, you're going to have to pay for everything. And then there's going to be that new mover that says, you know what, we're going to give you that same great content for free again. Um, so it's constantly changing and evolving, but I always believe so long as someone like The Athletic could actually make the content worth paying for they could thrive, and not have to worry about those concerns that you had just mentioned. Um, and it, for you know all intents and purposes, it seems like they really are thriving. They raised 20 million. Uh, they, they're I believe in now 25 to 30 cities. And you know myself, I'm paying like because I, I want that content, and I'd rather pay for that content than uh, you know find it somewhere else for free, but have a poor user experience. So um, that's something I'm bullish on, and I think it's important to continue to see. Uh, You know what the athletic can can do. Obviously, there are some elements to real time sports reporting that um, if you hide behind the paywall, uh, you don't quite reach that that level of audience that you you should be reaching um, because a lot of people obviously aren't subscribers. Uh, But, you know, nevertheless, I think what they're doing is very, very exciting. And it's something that I anticipate more publishers doing in the near term.
0: I absolutely love this subscription model. So as I started thinking about this in my head and I actually just subscribed to The Athletic uh, about a month ago and I think I got it for the year for 29 bucks. So I thought to myself now, all right, for can they make $3? They're going to make $3 a month from me by being this subscription. How many ba- how many page views would I have to consume for them to make that via banner advertising revenue? And is it realistic that I was going to view a thousand articles? The answer is no. So on a per, if you're going to do it on a CPM type basis, I believe it works better this way. The problem of course being is the people that they lose that aren't coming to the site and they're making the subscription to the banner ad revenue from that. But if the way that we're seeing these publishers hemorrhaging money to begin with, it seems like that's a loss to begin with. So if you're trying to rely on banner advertising revenue and you want the higher volume of people, I don't believe that's the right answer because we've proven that the model is no longer correct unless you correct. say, well, what's the LTV of a given uh, user? You're like, well, we can get him in our newsletter and then they can get him in our uh, podcast. And of course, there's different ways that you can uh, get somebody in your funnel. And it doesn't mean that the athletic couldn't also have... Uh, free options to get people into those funnels to use that to eventually convert them over to a subscription basis. And I fully expect that you're going to see, I've heard Barcel is going to be coming out with something. Uh, I think you could start seeing more premium podcasts where, hey, we'll give you uh, a light version for free. But if you want the next level of this, you're going to have to pay whatever X, Y, and Z. And you know what? I'm completely in favor of it.
1: Yeah, look, I've been paying $10 for Spotify for the last six years. Like Literally, I have not canceled even a month. And it's because it provides everything that I could possibly need, and I can't live without it, right? So again, that philosophy can be applied to so many different sectors. Uh, If if it offers you enough value and you enjoy the consumer experience, uh, you're going to pay for it. So um, I'm with you. And in terms of like, let let me just add this plug, uh, because this is where I think things are going. Uh, atomized content. I think, uh, people are going to, you know, increasingly consume shorter, um, you know, pieces of content in volume. So instead of listening to an hour long Bill Simmons podcast, instead of reading five long form articles and then watching a few videos, we're going to increasingly be consuming bits and pieces of everything. We're curating what we want to watch, where it exists, whenever we want to consume it. And uh, we're going to do it in volume in very short increments. So I don't know how you monetize that. I don't. Um, and that's more of a content strategy conversation, but that is pretty much where I anticipate everything going in the next three to five years, just by way of, again, uh, mobile use and, uh, depleting attention spans and, uh, obviously just the, you know, wide array of content in general. There's so much out there. Um, you know, you gotta, you know, pick and choose your time wisely. So that's, that's something that I, I would keep my eye on. Um, it's how I personally believe that things are going to continue to materialize, but, uh, in any event, it's always exciting.
0: So we will, I'll get you out on this one. Why have brands, why do you believe brands have not adopted podcasting and audio storytelling as quickly as they should? So if we look at the sports media landscape, almost every brand, their publisher that we talk about, they've got podcasts because they see the opportunity To tell the story in a different way, and oh, by the way, you can monetize it. Albeit many of them out there, I see. I just skip the first minute and a half because it's garbage. It's like welcome to Lisa Mattresses or insert whatever direct response ad there. But then you say, all right, well, who doesn't need to monetize a podcast like a publisher typically would? I'm like brands because they're selling whatever widgets, t-shirts, insert whatever because they're using it for awareness. But I'm just not seeing the market responding. or reacting accordingly. And I don't understand why, because personal brands, it works great. For publishers, it works great. So why would it not work for brands?
1: Look, I'm going to tell you, because again, you know, having spent two years working for a podcast app, I got to learn a lot of feedback, right? Positive and negative. And sadly, the number one piece of feedback I typically receive from brands and publishers that don't want to get involved is that same lame response you hear all the time and that they don't have enough time. Right, they don't have enough time, and that's, it, its a very lazy response. And, and the, the way I, um, you know, the way I, I hear those type of responses, is, 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 I apply it to something that I learned on the product side when I when I built a few of my, a few apps of my own. Right, when you add a feature, you remove a previous feature. You always keep things balanced. So if you're going to adopt podcasting, that doesn't necessarily mean it's an added thing on your plate. Find something that's not working for you, remove it, and replace it with that podcast presence. I think if, if you don't know the benefits of podcasting at this point, um, you're just ignorant or you know, you're not paying attention, and, and that's just inexcusable, especially for a big brand. So it's, I would imagine that most people know the benefits. They need to understand now that it's worthy of the time, and you need to replace something that you've been previously doing with that new, uh, you know, that, with that new time demand. You know, because you're right. Like, it produces high levels of engagement. Um, the ceiling is still so high. We barely scratched the surface. And marketers are scrambling, right? Because uh, you know, how often do you get access to a, an engaged consumer in 2018? It doesn't come, uh, doesn't come around very often. So that's the real beauty of podcasting. I think it's going to continue to grow. Uh, it's slow moving for sure. But man, they just say they don't have enough time and that's bogus.
0: Well, yeah. I remember when Snapchat first came out and everyone's like, oh my God, you get 10 seconds of attention. That is incredible. Not just six. So I started thinking about, all right, well, how often am I being exposed to brands and how much am I really engaging with them? So no matter the brand, unless it's one of these sports publishers we've talked about, it is probably less than 30 seconds per month that I'm dealing with any brand yet podcasting. You're now going to be in my ears for anywhere between five and 30 minutes and you're telling me you don't have enough time for this really that's just a lie because to solve your time excuse i'll just say go ahead and pay me you no longer have to worry about the time because i'll do that for you because there's the alternative you don't have time go and find somebody who will do it for you but unfortunately they won't do that because the culture says well that's just one of the other excuses because now it's not time well really we just don't know what we're doing and our plate's really full
1: yep well said, man. It's ridiculous, but <laughs> look, some people are forward thinkers; others aren't. Um, that's why there's always room for disruption, no matter the time, place, or sector, because there are people who continue to, you know, stretch the envelope, and those who do, uh, you know, create paradigm shifts. So, uh, you know, it's always exciting, as I said. So, Scott, where can everybody connect with you? Yeah, well, you can find me on Instagram at S Dungeon, D U N N G E O N, on Twitter, underscore S Dun, underscore. I talk a lot about sports, media, and tech, that intersection, as we basically just covered over the last 25 minutes. So find me there. In terms of getting responses off those you follow, I respond to everybody. So uh, drop me a line, love, hate, whatever, you'll hear back from it.
0: Yes, yeah, Scott and I are always chopping it up on Twitter about sports. You can follow me at Rob Cressy or all of our sports awesomeness at bacon sports. And as always, the number one thing that you can do to help us is to spread this via word of mouth. Let others know about the sports marketing huddle. And if you want some bonus points, we would really appreciate you going on iTunes, giving us a rating and review because It's not for us, it's for the people that it helps us with discovery because iTunes says, you know what, we want you to have a highly rated podcast. So if you go there, throw us a bone, give us five stars, let us know what you think about this.
1: And boom goes the dynamite.